I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche There's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything now you be surprised at the info you get. Hello and welcome to JK Plus One. I am not your host, PTF. I am uh, I'm not in the Brooklyn bunker. Uh, I think PTF is. I am uh, on the plane at Texas, Jonathan Kinchin. I appreciate you uh, joining us for another edition. And uh, I appreciate everybody that watched last week. That was a lot of fun with with Marshall catching up and reliving uh, him beating me out of $100,000. And, and so I, <laughs> I hope everybody else enjoyed that as well. Um, really excited about this week. Uh, this is uh, this is a person that I've, I've always been excited about getting on. Um, a person that a lot of people know from, from TV and from the Fox shows and from the Naira broadcasts and from, from Twitter. And... He's got something in common in all three of those places. Talking horses as well. He he can, uh, you know, he can be a little rough around the edges. You got to watch out for him. You have to, you know, I've heard him on Steve Bick, and I, I for the longest time I didn't think him and Steve were friends, and then I found out they are friends. It's just Andy, you know, kind of sticking it to him. So I was a little nervous, uh, thinking that uh, I was going to have to hang up on him, and 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 you know we were going to be in a fight, and then we couldn't be friends anymore. But uh, when I tell you he was just gentle and sweet for an hour and 50 minutes, uh, you're going to have to believe me. But uh, I'm really excited to to bring uh, my friend on the show, Andy Serling, and, and we talk about uh, we talk about his kind of his life and racing and uh, really cool, interesting stories. We talk about some of his favorite horses. We talk about uh, some of the things that uh, he feels like we need to do better. Uh, in the industry and some things we need to shut up about in the industry um and that was like as, as mean as he got and he wasn't yelling at anybody so it was kind of great um but uh i'm really excited to to for people to hear uh this side of andy the the side of andy that doesn't have past performances in front of him and an opinion uh to try to get across and and uh, i hope you will enjoy the next hour and 40 minutes and uh and it, it should be fun and uh without wasting any more time my friend andy surly andy what's going on not much enjoying a few days off there haven't been too many of them these days yeah, i'm enjoying the ones i get do you actually ever take it what's your what's your actual day off because i've seen you you're an animal i uh lie in bed and watch tv and read <laughs> these days well you know when we all used to have a life it's kind of you know receding further and further into the past um you know, I used to meet friends for lunch or dinner and go to movies and, you know, do stuff like that. But now I just like everybody else, I just start to hibernate. Right. And uh, stay home a lot and watch Netflix or read things like that. It's OK. You, you, live, in, you live in Manhattan. How, how weird is the city? I, I love the city because I always tell people I love New York. Because it's so exciting. Because if you don't look both ways before you cross the road, you could lose your life. I like that excitement. How how slow is it compared to what it normally is? Well, you know, it's it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, it was really really quiet um, into let's say May. Um, and, and and to be honest, I wasn't going out that much. I mean, I would have periods of time where I didn't go out for a week or so. I'd make late night trips to the to the fairway. You know, I'd go there at one in the morning when it was pretty much empty to get food for like the week or 10 days. I, there's a all night deli across the street from me that has literally never been closed. Um, I've lived here 38 years. And when I say it's never been closed, 
it's been open 24 hours, you know, for the entire time. Um, I would go there sometimes middle of the night, but hardly went out. Um, but as the weather got nicer, you know, like I'd say like the month before we went to Saratoga, you know, I would go out for walks on the days off and, and walk in Central Park and people were out. I mean, everybody's wearing a mask. And, you know, the one thing I appreciate about New York is you're on the subways and people take it seriously. They wear masks. Um, but it really, I think it changed a lot while we were in Saratoga, because when I got back in September, the traffic had increased, you know, my, my corner, um, I live in 72nd and West End, and there's a, a left-hand turn on, on West End, if you're going uptown, that goes right into the West Side Drive to the Henry Hudson. So that's a pretty busy corner, and it wasn't busy forever. And when I got back, it just seemed like everything was back to normal, you know, and the streets were crowded, people were busy, but the problem with New York now is, I mean, I've always felt that I love New York, but I always felt like if you're living in New York and you're not taking advantage of what it has to offer, whether it's the theater, you know, movies, museums, um, uh, just sort of, the, you know, restaurants, the whole so much that it has to offer. If you're not taking advantage of that, it's a tough place to live. Right. Well, you know, the day to day can be a little rough at times. And the problem is that none of that stuff is really available. If it is, it's at a, a much lower level than it was so a lot of the stuff that's enjoyable about the city is gone so that's kind of hard but i, I like living here i work here it's not you know getting aqueduct is great right i get there in an hour on the a train um i don't mind riding the subways because people wear masks <clears throat> and if you have a car and somebody is wearing a mask on the a train I'll, I'll move or something but people really do are being responsible so i don't have a problem with that it's just sort of a drag. I don't see my friends. They don't come in from out of town. I don't meet people for dinner or lunch. And it's just sort of sad, right? I'm sure it's similar for you. I mean, yeah. you probably see a lot less of the people. I think it's true for everybody. It's it's kind of a new normal, but I think we're all looking forward to a period. And now with some real hope with vaccines, you know, within six months where we can get back to our lives. But in the meantime, I think it's becoming more and more obvious we need to be as careful as we can be because you want to stay healthy and you want to keep the people around you healthy as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was a, it was really nice to be in Saratoga this summer um, just because I felt like people were more respectful in Saratoga than, than yeah. I feel like I experience here in Texas. Um, you can you can attribute that to what you will, but it it's so, I, you know, I, I kind of got a false sense of comfort in Saratoga because people were, you know, were respectful. And then I came here and thought I'd go to a patio and eat dinner. And it just felt a little bit different, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, no, I know. I know lots of mean. heroes. I don't understand the heroes that feel like they have to try to prove it wrong. It's like, just wear your mask, dude. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You, you wear masks to protect people around you, not to protect yourself. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's just a sign to me, it's just respect for other people. And the safety of others, and you would like to think that they're respecting yours. I agree. Saratoga was was nice for a lot of reasons. Um, it was more relaxed. It was chill walking around, but and people were wearing masks when they were downtown and the restaurants. But it just, I mean, I stayed an extra week. I, I was just really happy there. It felt nice, and my mom's there, and I think it was nice to have you there. You know, I think one of the things I miss in the shows, um, you know, we were talking about this a bit this past weekend. We had some fun together on Sunday when you and Greg and I were on and we were killing a lot of time because we didn't have much time. And so we did some back and forth and I wish we could do more of that. And I, you know, I enjoy you and I have fun together, I think in the shows and I, I, that's something I've missed, you know, because we haven't been able to do that much. We're not in the desks together that often and stuff. And I wish we'd do more of that, but I think Saratoga was nice and it was, you know, it was nice to see you and see some other people up there as well. <laughs> not just the normal crew, which I, who I like as well, but you know, you were there, Tom was there. So that was nice. Now, 
Um, I did a little bit of research here. You did you move to Saratoga in '73? I did. Labor Day '73. Did you love racing before you moved to Saratoga, or was that the thing that kind of got you going? I had absolutely no interest at all. Um, my dad loved the track. You know, my dad's father. My dad's father died when he was ten. Um, of TB, and he was an action guy. Uh, my dad told me that he owned a piece of the boxer and Cinderella man. His father did. Um, his father, you know, was, 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 there's a picture of my dad at Hialeah when he was a little kid. Um, and so my dad loved the races. My grandmother, his, his mother, who lived in the city, who I was very close to, she and I went to track a lot together. She went the races a lot too. She loved the track. Um, and, so he used to go to Liberty Bell and Monmouth when we lived in New Jersey. We lived out right near Princeton. And I went to Liberty Bell with him once. Didn't have, and it was thoroughbreds back then. I think Liberty Bell is actually the track that Nick Zito won his first race. Um, it became a big harness track. And I used to go there when I was in college in the 80s. Um, it sucks when it closed for many years and tore down. But we moved to Saratoga, you know, we moved right after the meet was over. And I didn't even know what the flat track was, honestly. I didn't even know. I think I might have known that Secretariat lost because I knew about Secretariat. Um, one of my best friends in in Saratoga, in, in, in New Jersey, um, was Remy Bellick, whose father is Pep. And I think Remy, Remy works in racing. So I knew Remy as a kid. It wasn't until I moved to Saratoga that I realized his father was the cartoonist for the form. And I remember that Remy had gone to Belmont to see Secretariat when the Belmont stakes. I knew about Secretariat as a kid. Um, so I sort of knew about him, but then the harness track was open. Back then, the harness track used to be open until October. So I went a couple times with my dad, and it just didn't have any interest to me at all. But when I went the next summer, I think there's a big difference between going to a lot of racetracks and stepping in the, the track at Saratoga. And instantly, it just, I was mesmerized. That, that, I mean, it changed for me literally the first day I set foot in Saratoga into the, into the big track. So in say in 74, were you an everydayer? I went, my father would, uh, my father worked for Empire State College, which is sort of a university without walls type concept. My father was always involved in that. He, he worked at ETS, um, which is, was between Princeton and Pennington where we lived with a, with a program called CLEP, which is called college level examination program. It was about accrediting um, people for, work they had done and you know they couldn't afford to go to college they needed to support a family and they needed you know they worked and my father was very much believed that those people had a lot of learned experience that was valuable as college credits and try to find ways for them to take tests to get college credits so they could finish college in a shorter period of time and for less money as well and so he was very involved in that and that's when we moved to saratoga to work at empire state and um so he would leave and we'd He'd go over because they only had a try tri trifecta in the, the last race back then, and he loved the tries. So he would come by and like pick me up, and we'd walk over for the last two races, so he could play the try in the last race. And that's what I started to do, you know, probably a handful of times the first three weeks. Don't forget it was just four weeks, and then the last week I went over every day, and that's when I saw Ruffian, and I knew about Ruffian. I also saw Foolish Pleasure. I did not know anything about Foolish Pleasure, nor did I remember that I saw him until I saw him in the PPs when he won the Derby, that he won the Hopeful. But, um, and, I, and I was banged to show. And just like the jockeys and trainers, but I just loved it. I loved being there and seeing the horses and the whole thing and the numbers. 
And I started cutting out all the charts, which I still have from Belmont and Aqueduct in 74 going forward. And, you know, buyer's book came out the next spring. And that was really it for me. So you, you, you know, you, so it sounds like you fell in love in the summer of 74. So that's, that was another question I had. Like, what, what did you do with that love? You didn't have an ADW then when you were that age, you obviously couldn't watch TVG. How did you, did you watch the races from Belmont and Aqueduct in any way, or were you just kind of stuck? Well, I mean, I think I'm in the same position that most people were, you know, to put things in perspective and I'm sure people that listen might be aware of this. When I moved to Brooklyn in 1984, when I first moved to the city, I lived in Brooklyn for four years. I moved to the city in 88. They didn't even have cable in Brooklyn. So, you know, the idea of seeing the races and doing those things is a, you know, it's a relatively recent phenomenon. Even, you know, OTBs didn't show them until, you know, the 80s in some places and even even later. So seeing the races, in fact, the first OTB to show the races was a John Street OTB, which is near where I work downtown um, in this winter of 84, 85. So seeing the race was hard. The only way you saw the races back then and a lot of people could tell you this who are my age or older was there was an OTB show um, with Frank Wright, Frank Wright, Charles C. Canty, Dave Johnson um, from, I think, six o'clock to five thirty to six or six, six thirty. It was on every Saturday and they would show the feature race and the, and the ninth race. They only ran nine races back then, you know, the feature in the night from Belmont or Aqueduct and probably Saratoga, too. But I was in the track in Saratoga, so I didn't even see it. Um, and that was on channel nine in New York, which we got a cable in Saratoga. So I watched that never missed that. Um, WKAJ was a radio station in Saratoga at the time, and they used to have a replay of the feature race. So you could listen to on the radio. And I bet with a bookmaker who's, you know, sort of infamous in Saratoga, he's passed away. So I talk about him now. Um, it's right by where you eat dinner every night. You're, I've told you this, right? No, no. You know, the, the, where you're sitting out in front of, um, Salevo? Salevo. There's a music store next to it? Yeah. Yeah, that, that was a bookie joint. <laughs> I spent four years of my life in there playing cards and banging horses. <laughs> and uh, with a lot of characters from Saratoga. Nobody got a better and cheaper lesson than people cheating you in gin than I did in that place. Um, when somebody's cheating you for quarters, they're doing you a favor. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, not that, you know, I don't know what I did with it later in life, but, it, you know, it's a good life lesson. Um, so there was a station in Schenectady, 3WD, that taped the re calls the races off of OTB, and they'd play them like a minute or so later. So by the time I was about 15, I discovered that station, and that was something we always listened to calls. But I didn't see much racing. I mean, maybe I'd go to the track in New York a few times a year, but I didn't see a lot of races. And don't, There was no video then, you know what I mean? There was no, you couldn't. You know what they didn't put they, the first track to put in video replays was Laurel in like the late eighties, and it progressed from there. While other tracks got it, but Laurel was cutting edge on that. Um, now, when you went to when you went to college, you went to Lehigh, right? Yep. Were you were, what was the closest racetrack to Lehigh? Penn National. I mean, the Meadowlands was ninety minutes away. Um, my freshman year, Glenn Lane, who I don't know if Glenn owns any horses anymore, on uh, my C Glenn around. Um, Glenn owned horses back then. He was pretty involved, very involved. And Glenn was finishing at Lehigh. So I remember one night he drove me to the Meadowlands with him, seeing his horses. That was fun. Um, but, uh, you know, there was actually a store in South Bethlehem, where Lehigh is, a newsstand, which got the advanced edition of the form. You know, this is before your time. So you don't realize that, you know, in New York, you couldn't get the next day's form until nine o'clock that night, got delivered around the city. 
There was an advanced edition, which started in the late 70s, but that was only available at racetracks in New York. So if you went to the track on a, you know, a day, you could buy the advance that morning. But it wasn't until years later that, that changed. Um, but you get the advanced in Bethlehem. So I would buy that on Saturdays a lot to watch. But my sophomore year, I actually lived around the corner from that newsstand um, downtown 4th Street in, in South Bethlehem. And uh, Penn Nationals was the first account wagering site. And I opened an account. I put 50 bucks in it, which was a lot back then. But I think it cost like a quarter or 50 cents to call up and make a bet, which is a lot if you don't have much money and don't have much money in your account. So I would bet some races at Penn National um, and have some fun with that. And they, you know, they had the show on, on, the ca- on cable. There was a station where you'd see them in the paddock. And so I watched a little of that when I was in school. Um, when I wasn't, you know, watching other sports and betting on them and, you know, going to dead shows and whatever I did. But uh, I, I stayed involved. But I would say the four years in college were the years I was le- paying attention to racing the least. What was there? Did, was, was it always Lehigh for you? Did you did you think about going anywhere else? And was did the racetrack have anything to do with maybe your decision to maybe go somewhere else? Lehigh wouldn't have anything to do with the, with, with the racetrack because I had to miss the first last first last week and a half of the meet my freshman year to go for freshman orientation. It was this horrendous thing that ever happened in my life. I'm scarred as a result. That's why I am the person I am, Jonathan. I'd be much nicer <laughs> if I hadn't missed that last week and a half of the 1980 meet. And you know, also you have to realize so Saratoga, as you know, is a, is a wild, fun town. And you know, you're not as old as I am, but you're you know you're older. Imagine being a, a college kid and coming home to Saratoga in the summers. And also, the drinking age was 18 when I was 18. It was 19 when I was 19. And it was 21 when I was 21. So I've been going to bars since I was 17. And the bar scene was wild down back then. It's no different. You know what I mean? It's not like it got much different. So you go home to Saratoga in the summer and got all these kids from skateboard the state over the summer. You go to the bars. You do all that stuff. And here I am going to Lehigh my freshman year. I'm going out every night with my friends. I'm out till four in the morning all the time. I'm going to the track of the day. And suddenly I got to go to college and I go to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where the drinking age is 21, where there isn't a bar scene. It's all frats at Lehigh. You might be surprised here. I'm not a frat guy. Um, and I'm just like, I can't believe this. I just left Utopia and now I'm in South Bethlehem. So it was a it was an experience for me. You know, it was it was changed, but I adapted. If, if I could do it again, I, you know, I went to Texas. I, I would have went to summer school uh, at Skidmore every year. If right. I could go back, that would have been the smart move. Well, it would have been a smart move. It would have been a fun move. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe the smart move would be for me to go to college on the moon. Um, but, you know, you, you, you change a little bit, and it's just the access to it. The only thing about college is you don't have that much money, you know. Yeah. I didn't have that much walk-around money, so how much gambling could I do, really? Um, I did a little bit. I mean, I bet sports, you know, I used to lose betting sports because I didn't need money. You just had to find a way to pay eventually. Um, so I didn't play the horses as much. But the summers I did. Now, when you trans, when you uh, when you graduated, did you go straight into like the financial market stuff or did you do something in between? I went to Saratoga for one last summer. Um, and that was fun. And then I went and my, I worked for my uncle on the New York Futures Exchange, try trading down there. And I, listen, I was, you know, I really had no idea what I was doing. The best thing about my working in the Futures Exchange, honestly, was that I met my friend Chip, who's one of my best friends in life and a lifelong friend who lives out in LA. And I would say that's the best thing I got by working at Futures Exchange. Because if I didn't work there, I never would have met Chip and he's great. So that's good. So, um, 
um, he may be slightly more difficult than I am, actually, which is incredible. <laughs> um, so uh, then I worked for my uncle as a as a um, clerk for him on the exchange, and that was for most of my first year. He, my uncle, uh, was a broker; he had a seat on the exchange. And I had a very brief, I got a job from there in the fall of 85, um, working in a firm called Jamie Securities, J-A-M-I-E. If people want to Google them, they should, because there's a lot of indictments against them they can read about um, after I left. And nothing, believe me, I, I was not qualified to be involved in that stuff. They're actually exonerated, I think. Um, it, was, it was two people, but one of them was a guy named John Mulhern, who's kind of a legendary Wall Street crazy guy. Um, he died of a heart attack. A while ago. He was very good friends with Bruce Springsteen. Um, and he was implicated when this stuff you may not know, but Ivan Boski was a huge name in the arbitrage world. And he got busted because a lot of the information he was getting was inside information from a guy at Drexel Burnham. I think the guy's name was Dennis Levine. This is like 80s, late 80s stuff. Big, big, big stuff. And he named Mulhern as one of the guys who was giving information to Mulhern fought him, and I think he won it on an appeal. Um, he beat, he lost, but then he beat it on appeal. Um, and it was, I was, I was thrown into a, a just like um, a hornet's nest there, where I was literally expected to be his um, assistant. I had absolutely no, I, I knew nothing, nothing. You know, it would literally be like picking a guy off the street and sticking him on air on our show next to me, and me behaving like he should know as much as you do. You know, <laughs> it, it was just ridiculous, and. I mercifully got fired about five weeks after being there. And the best thing about that was the dead tour was starting the next week. So it was great. I got fired and I went back to my desk and called a friend and hooked up to meet him in Atlanta and went to 11 dead shows um, in the, the like late October, early November of 1985. And then went the track for a while and figured out and I got a job working for my friend Bruce. And that's how I ended up getting involved. Bruce and I weren't friends at the time. We'd become friends. And uh, that's how I got involved with trading options. Now, you know, I grew up in Texas, so I didn't really have a lot of like friends whose parents were, you know, worked at Wall Street. I've just seen like movies. Was it, were you there like in the crazy times, like the, the, you know, the boiler room wolf of Wall Street times? Were you, were you involved? I'm not, were you involved in that, but were you, were you, were you around that? Do you, do you see me as a guy involved in the boiler room will, will, things? No, I see you involved in it. I, I can see you, no, I can see you, uh, you having know, to deal I, with people, crazy people. Oh, I've dealt with a lot of crazy people in my life. I've described a couple of them. Um, John Mueller used to walk around the office of the news. Not joking. Um, uh, and, I, you know, I worked with options traders before I traded the floor. I saw, you know, the floor was wild. Listen, you know, I was down there when the Internet things were booming. The floor was crazy. The, the American Stock Exchange, where I traded options. Believe me, Jonathan, that would have been a place for you. I don't know about I mean, that. You could have got yourself into enormous amounts of trouble down there. It's, it's too wild. much math. Um, yeah, trust me. It is math, but a lot of it's on your computers. I mean, people know different levels. I mean, there was a time down there when all you need to do is put a body down there, and they could stay in a crowd and make real money. You know, things change. I mean, I saw the whole thing change. But I was there for, I came in, the, you know, the market collapsed in 87, um, in October of 87. And that changed things a lot because a lot of tra people had done well, but a lot of people got wiped out. Some people, like one person I know made a lot of money. Um, and then it quieted down for a period of time, but then it picked up again in the 90s. 
you know, I was on the floor from the beginning of 90 until the end of 93. And then I left and went to track for, for a few years. And then I went back at the end of 97. But I was trained on it for 10 years, starting in late 97. And, you know, I was there for some, some good times. I probably didn't maximize the good times as much as I should have. But I think if I had maximized the good times as much as I should have, I probably would have blown a lot of it back like a lot of people did. You know, it's easy to say when you should have made money that you didn't. But you have to also be aware that you're putting yourself in that position. It would have been hard not to have blown a lot of it back. And but I, but trading options was was very interesting um, and profitable for a long time. But I mean, just in, in sort of simplistic terms, when I started trading down there and you stood in a trading crowd, you were buying things for a dollar and simultaneously selling them for a dollar thirty. By the time I left, you were buying them for a dollar and trying to sell them at a dollar two. There's a big difference there. Was that you think that was the computer? Is that what did that? No, just the markets got more efficient. And computers got involved in all the trading, but they just they started to squeeze the margins, you know, and, and things changed a lot. They quieted down. I mean, after the Internet, things quieted down. And then, you know, it was a tough time. I mean, I made a lot of my money just by selling volatility because the market just sat there for years. Um, and, you know, I had some good spots I traded and, and did, did OK for a while. But then it just it got very hard. And by the time I left in 07, I mean, I lost a little bit of money in, in New Century. And that was when I just, you know, said, I don't need to put more money into this because I'm not making any money anywhere. I'm making such a small amount and I wanted to work in racing. And I thought if I can't find a job and do something in racing, I got, you know, in my mid 40s. I don't want to. There's no there's no floor left. You know, I, I had lunch with a, with, a, with a guy I was friendly with in the floor, a very big trader and, and a really good guy about a year ago. I buck dialed him in the, in the paddock for the Belmont in 19. And as a result, we, we talked um, on the phone. So we had lunch. We lived in the city. And he said to me, you were ahead of the curve in leaving. You know, it was less than a year and everybody had left, basically. And people struggled to find work. You know, it was hard um, because our skills on the floor were fairly minimal. You're adding and subtracting is not really a skill. Now you you talk about the the you know you were you were buying for a dollar and selling for a dollar thirty and then eventually became a dollar to a dollar and 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 change. It, do you feel like that's kind of what happened with racing too? Like like back then, yes. You know your dollar was worth two dollars and now your dollar's worth a dollar and four cents. Yes, unquestionably, um, a very 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 fair analogy. I mean, a lot went into that. Um, I mean, some of it obviously is there's less dead money. You know, in New York, something that doesn't get talked about, the demise of New York City OTB took a, a real percentage of dead money out of the pools. You know, whether or not that money would have continued is another discussion. But that's clearly something that happened that took some dead money out. I mean, everything matters, right? Everything matters. Every better. Obviously, CAW players have changed things a lot, you know, and depending on where you play, they're somewhere from 15 percent to God knows what at some racetracks. I don't even want to know. I just don't play them. Um, and obviously, everybody that wins increases the takeout for everybody else. And if, you know, some racetrack has 30 percent of the handle and those guys are losing 5%, let's say, right? So they're cutting effect, you know, they're, they're beating takeout, we'll just round say 15%. If a third of the takeout 
is 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 beating takeout by fifteen percent. They're lower. They're raising the takeout five percent for everybody else, right? Or actually seven and a half percent, right? Because they're a third of the takeout. So people don't, I don't think, understand what some of these places, especially they're in day with CAW play, how they've raised effective takeout for everybody else. But it's even beyond that. It's not just the CAW players that are obviously sophisticated. It's everybody sophisticated. I mean, if you wanted to do trip notes going way back, you had to watch the races when they were run, maybe tape on your VCR, watch the head-ons they were shown. There weren't replay centers. If you found them, they were arduous to deal with. Now every replay is available at the touch of a button on a computer. Um, but all this stuff, I mean, the forum didn't always back in the day have courses with their records on wet tracks, trainer stats, all sorts of stuff that's available now. It didn't have jerks telling people certain things, right? Biases weren't ready avail readily available. There's so much information, and it's, it's good to give the information to people, but the problem with so much information being readily available is it cuts down your edge. And there's no doubt that horses that used to pay square prices pay significantly less now. Things have changed dramatically. Now, the, the you know, and I, you know, I'm fairly new to the history of, of a lot of the things that happened in racing. There's some things I know they happened, but I'm not really sure what happened when they happened. What, what happened to New York OTB? Why did that go away? Was I have I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Um, incredibly inefficiently run, probably. Where the money went, I don't know. It's not really my place to hypothesize. You know, something that people don't realize is that they owed Naira 22 plus million, I believe, that they never paid when they went bankrupt. And I know there are a lot of myths about Naira supposedly getting state bailouts, all of which are untrue. But nobody talks about that. That was money they owed us. Um, but why exactly they went out, I don't know. You know, it's probably management, whatever. But that's not a place that I was involved, and I wouldn't want to hypothesize over. That would be fair. So you mentioned that you took a break from '93 to '97. I'm I'm uh, coming to the conclusion that that is the time that you were playing professionally or semi-professionally. Um, what what was about? What, what came to that decision? What, what was it, uh, you know, when, and where was buyer involved in that? Did you meet buyer then decide to go or, or how did that, all that work that, that time period? Well, when I left the floor at the end of 93, it took me approximately 48 seconds from when I left. Um, I was working with a guy with Roger and I left working with him, um, to decide that I was going to go to Gulfstream for the winter. Um, I had tickets to a Knicks Orlando game to see Shaq um, with my, my, my former neighbor, Aiden. And uh, Aiden and I went to the game. I think it was the first, I think it was like opening day of Gulfstream. And I literally got a plane for the next morning. And I got down there for the end of the car on the second day. And I was staying at a friend's place at the time in Delray. And I knew that, you know, people were down there and I knew people there, but I didn't really care that I, you know, that I knew anybody or not. I was going to go to Gulfstream and play every day. And it was as simple as that. And I don't, what was that, 90, I had only been to Gulfstream for the Breeders' Cups in 89 and 92. I don't think I had ever been there other than that, you know. Um, and I luckily had just gotten my driver's license that fall. I took lessons from Taggart's. <laughs> and I, um, 
I just drove down to the track every day and I ended up hanging out with the guys, you know, Byer was there and, and Paul Kornman. I ended up staying with Paul. Um, Paul and I were friends back then. And I moved, you know, with him and Pembroke Pines. And um, that's really when, I mean, I've known Andy, the autograph picking winners in 1975, a cherished possession of mine. So I'd known Andy for a long time, but that's when Andy and I sort of cemented our friendship. And um, I think I've told the story before. There was a horse named Aggressive Chief. And I was standing back and not you wouldn't know some of these guys. I don't know. Did you know Ticket Bob who passed away not long ago? No, I don't know him. No, of him probably. And Jimmy Packer, who I, I miss Packer. Um, and he's there, and I'd known Packer for many, many years. And, and, and Andy was there, and I started talking about Aggressive Chief and said, anybody like this horse or whatever? And Andy said, why do you like him? And I explained why I liked him. And he said, oh, okay, thanks. And he won. He paid like $9. wasn't special or anything, whatever. But, you know, back then, you hit exactors and tries. It was Gulfstream was magic back then. Magic, believe me. Um, you had to do a lot of work. You did the work, you got paid. And um, that's when Annie Knight and Annie came to me the next day. And he said, you know, I hadn't seen that horse, thanks, you know, whatever. And he and I just started going over the cards together every day after that in the mornings. It was sort of a early talking horses. And uh, we used to have to move it around because we'd get the same leeches sort of sitting behind us hearing who we liked. And that went on for, you know, the next, that year and the next year. And he and I ended up being roommates in 96. Um, Paul stayed in New York. He was working on the TV show back then. But, uh, you know, I, I, that was that was great. I mean, I, I look back on those years playing the horses, especially Florida, going to Keeneland. I ran a place in Lexington in April of 94, 95. Uh, they were the, some of the happiest times of my life. Uh, I just and, I, and and in doing that. That's when Steve, Chris, and I became friends. You know, we sort of knew each other to say hi. But when he went to work for Naira in late 94, he and I started hanging out when he was working there. And that's how he became friends. And Steve's the one who asked me that if I wanted to fill in on Talking Horses back in December of 95. So that was my first work on TV. And, you know, Steve was, you know, you know, and then I worked in Naira for Steve and they, they, they canned Steve. And then shortly thereafter, Terry Meeks was in charge, realized that he had made the mistake of allowing a friend of Steve's to still be on TV. So he got rid of me too. And Steve was the only one that sort of hired me. You know, he, he hired me to do DRF seminars when, when he bought the racing form with Charlie Hayward and those guys. And I did those seminars and I worked with Harvey and stuff, but, but Steve's one who gave me my chance to work on television and do public handicapping stuff. And, you know, I owe him a debt of gratitude to that. And in relation to that, his relationship with Charlie Hayward. And that's how I ended up coming to Naira. But all, all that stuff came because I was playing full time. So regardless of how it worked out, whatever, and I ended up going back to the floor, which I always figured I would anyway, you know, um, all of this stuff I have now is a direct result of being at the track full time back in the nineties. So I, I'm excited to talk about the TV stuff. I want to hit a couple of other things back in Florida. Did, when did you meet Paul Matisse? Probably around then. It's hard to remember. Paul might remember better than I do. But I think, you know, back then, Paul wasn't there a lot. I don't think. But I have a vague memory of meeting him at Gulfstream. I think he was working for Andy back then, wasn't he? Yeah, he did. He worked for, I know he did work for Andy. I don't know what I, years it was, but I, I think, it might have been then. I, you know, you got to really something about Paul. Paul's uncle Jim was my high school gym teacher. So I knew Paul, I knew Jim Matisse since I was in, you know, ninth, 10th grade, and he was in the high school, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. And he's a great guy. I mean, the, the high school gym teachers, Jim Matisse and Nick Alex, were two of my favorite people in high school. You got to really say about Sarah Mahai. 
a lot of the teachers there played the horses. Um, so <laughs> one of the many great things about Saratoga, you know, and Nick and I used to, you know, hang out and stuff. And he worked the track as a bartender. A lot of, you know, teachers worked there. Um, Paul Chartrand, who's a gym teacher of mine when I was in seventh, eighth, ninth grade. He was still working in the Jim Dandy Bar, I think probably as late as 2019. And hopefully he'll be back this summer. Um, I see him, you know, it's, it's kind of neat, actually. But that would be my connection to Paul Matisse would be Jim, if anything. But I, I don't even remember how I learned of Paul. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm sure, I'm relatively sure I met Paul before Duke. Um, I think, I, I wonder if Paul remembers better than me. I feel like I can remember sitting with him at a table at Gulfstream one of those years and talking and that's how we became friends. But I'm not sure if there was a specific way we met, but he worked with Andy and listen, people knew about Paul because he's a smart guy, you know, and also an extremely nice guy. Um, so he, he's somebody that people like to know, you know, even when you didn't know about him. That was a, you know, it's a small clique of people who were playing back then. It's all, you know, sort of knew each other or knew the same people kind of. Right. Now, back in, in, you know, 93, 94, 5, 6, 7, I, I know your workflow now. I mean, not all of it, but I know to a certain extent when the when they draw, you start working and you, you write in all the stuff you want to write in and then you do your replay work and then you do your, your, your formulator work and blah, 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 blah. What was your workflow back like then when you didn't, you know, what was, your, you know, an average day for you when you were playing professionally when you didn't have all the things we have now? And also, you should remember, we were racing six days a week. Okay? It was... I can't remember if Florida was five or six days a week, to be honest with you. But it may have been six. But it could have been five. I'm not even sure. But I'm going to tell you, it was insane. Um, you know, I would keep all the chart... Those chart remember those charts weekly so would come out DRF? Mm -hmm. I would keep two years of them. I would bring them to Florida. I'd bring a few months of forms with me to Florida. I, ha I had all of the uh, breeding books from Briss, Bloodstock Research, so I could look up pedigrees of broodmares. But that was before it came online. It came online around 94, 95 to get a disc. I bought a little computer to look at that. It was my first little computer. Um, and, I mean, you know, you watching replays, we would go there to Gulfstream and just sit at the replay center for a lot of the days, watching races for the next day. You'd get the form in the morning. Um, Paul would get up earlier than me and get the forms. And I would get up whenever I got up because I was up till th two, three in the morning every night. And I remember in 95, particularly a place on the inner coast with a pool, but I would put my trip notes from my form into the, I try to get all my trip notes that I kept from Gulfstream meet and from Belmont and Aqueduct before it into the form. And then you start doing the handicapping when you get the track for the next day to try to watch replays. And then you're putting together at night. It was a crazy amount of work, much more than now. But the payoff for it was so good that you didn't mind. And I was younger. I mean, listen, I'm pretty enthusiastic about it now. And I'm much older. It's less work. But, man, the racing in Florida, I'm not romanticizing it. It was good. And we made money. I'm not, you know, I know when I won and I know when I lost. And I, that first year I was there, it was unbelievable. Even the second year was good, but the first year was incredible. But you worked really hard to get there. Yeah, Duke, uh, I did I did one of these with Duke and he was telling about old Vegas and just like, he's just like, Jonathan, you don't understand. Like, it was like, I mean, you had to work, but it was so easy to win if you did the work. If yep. you did the work, it was easy. 
And I was like, oh, man, it's been so much fun. <laughs> Florida was, was incredible. I mean, the opportunities were incredible. Um, Andy used to have a thing. I remember, I want to say in 95, if he won five figures or more, he'd take us to Chef Allen, which is a fancy good restaurant by the track. And we went a few times. And people just won down there. They did. Different things, different stuff going on, but there was good stuff going on down there. The racing was interesting. There were biases. You had to work, but it was it was good. Times were good back then. Um, not it's 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 a lot tougher. It's a lot different than it is now than it was is now. You know, obviously you're a, a New Yorker and, and a and a Naira guy through and through. But it, where would you spend eight weeks if you know Saratoga was was not there? And I don't even want to put that in the air. But where would you go? For eight weeks, any racetrack in the country, where would you go for eight weeks? I wouldn't go in the country. I'd go overseas. I'd go to Goodwood for a little while, and I'd go to Dovi. I'm sorry that I never get to go to Glorious Goodwood, and I never get to go to Dovi because they're both run during Saratoga. So that's what I would do if Saratoga shut down. Wow. If I, I've, I've, uh, how many times have you been to 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 the Arc? Just once. Um, I've only went to Paris in 2005. I went, I was there when Hurricane Run one. We went there for two days, went to Toy one day, went to Sun Clue another day. I think those are the only tracks we went to. You enjoyed it? Oh, it was great. Paris was great. Stayed up late, drank every night. It was great fun. You have a, you, museums. you, you um, you, you're really into French movies. You have like a, you have a French culture thing, huh? Well, I mean, if you're a movie person, French movies, there's, there's some of the greatest movies that were ever made. I mean, they make great. I mean, France is a great movie culture. Every year. I mean, they make great stuff. And if you live in New York, you have access to that stuff. Because they, the, they have the film festival, right? When is that usually? It's in uh, late February, maybe into March. I know it got cut off by the pandemic, so it was going in the second week. Um, I actually didn't get to go that many last year. And now, you know, you can watch them virtually that you can watch them online or, you know, I actually was able to hook my computer up to the TV, which I consider one of my great accomplishments in later <laughs> life, running an HDMI cable from my computer to my TV. You laugh. But to me, that was like, I'm satisfied for the rest of my life now. Did you, uh, have you been to the Toronto Film Festival? Is that a pretty good one too? It is. But, you know, when we went up there for Fox, we were doing those shows with Greg and Richie and I were doing those. Um, it was during that film festival, but I never went. That's a pretty big industry type thing, too. Mm, okay. So you talked about uh, kind of how you, your, your, you know, Steve, Chris got you your first kind of on air gig. Were you nervous? Your first no, I, th I think, and, and I think you can probably talk about this as well as I can. Uh, for me, I think that you either find yourself comfortable or you don't. And I remember going to the studio. It's the same studio that we use at Aqueduct now. I don't know if you've ever been to the Aqueduct studio. We don't use it for our TV show. It's where we do Talking Horses and I do the Prattles and stuff. Um, and I just didn't have any issue with the camera. I was comfortable sitting there and comfortable talking to the camera. I never had a problem with that. I, I think some of it is a lot of it, at least for me, I can't speak for other people, is if you're confident that you're on top of the information, there's nothing to be nervous about, right? You're talking about stuff you understand. I think if they asked me to go in there and talk about quantum physics, physics, I probably would have been a little bit nervous. But I was prepared and knew what to talk about, and the camera never phased me. But I think maybe it's different for some people. Yeah, I never really felt like I got nervous in front of the camera. I just, I have a, I don't, I don't want to say something stupid. Well, 
and we I also curse a lot the in real life, so I'm always scared. I'm about rain. to say the F word. <laughs> I'm swearing on camera. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, when we first started doing the show, um, Richie was away for the weekend, and we brought somebody else in, and it was Jason, myself, and this person. And there was a blanket finish in a turf race. I think that it was a two-year-old turf. I think Chad won the horse. Of course, there was a turf race. Uh, lipstick something. Lipstick City or something. But there were like seven or eight horses across the wire. And they crossed the wire. And Tony Alvado, our, our, our senior boss, texts me. And he says, did somebody just say the S word on the air? And immediately I say to myself, Ugh, can't, I can't believe I finally did it. Something it had to be me, right? And then I start thinking, you know, that's not really my word. My word's the F word. <laughs> so <laughs> I started thinking maybe it wasn't me. So I look over at Jason and I say to him, did somebody just say on the air? And he points to the other guy. So I was great relieved that it wasn't me, at least, that did it. Um, I've been caught on mics that were supposed to be closed saying stupid, inappropriate things, but never swearing, which is kind of miraculous in my case. Yeah. It's going to happen. You yeah. probably jinxed it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how it, it's, it's, you know, I think that like, I learned to control myself a little bit more when I had my son. Cause uh, you know, you, that I, you kind of train yourself to have that switch to turn it off. So I think I can turn it off now, <laughs> but, but you never know when it's going to actually come back and bite you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you, you know, you're not conscious of it, but I think you can be conscious of it. And you know, one of the things about our show that I, I, I like is that it's very conversational and, you know, and pretty much laid back, you know what I mean? Um, and it's, it's, so I, it doesn't get particularly contentious, even if we're giving each other a hard time, it's not contentious. So I don't see any reason to get, you know, but really anything can happen. Um, when did the zero shows start and how, and how that come about? Um, well, they've been doing them for a long time. And in fact, Paul Kornman ran them in the 90s. And Paul had suggested to, at the time, I think Catherine Wilkins, and Catherine, of course, married to Judd Francis. Um, she was working the forum back then. That when Paul left the work in Naira, they hired me to, to run them. And this was like 95, I guess. And Catherine said later, I mean, she just didn't really know me that well. I don't blame her. And I think they hired John Preachy to do them. Um, and she just didn't know me that well, which is fine. You know, I understood that. And, you know, it was fine. But when Steve bought the paper, I, I feel like the summer of 99 was the first year. Now, I was trading, and back then I would rent a place in town, but I'd probably come up for, I don't know if we had gone to 30 days. We may have gone to 30 days by then. You know, started went 30, 36, 40. I'm not exactly sure the timing of that. I was always there on the weekends, and I was probably there two to three full weeks in the interim, but I was also going back at that time. It wasn't until the summer, the summer of 2003. I never starting in 2003. I never went back. I missed one racing day since then for a relative's funeral um, starting then. Um, but which I can tell you why that is, but that's another story. But um, I think zero started in 99. And for the first year, I probably did two a week, maybe three. By the third year, I was on almost every day with Harvey. And I was even hosting on Mondays. Harvey took off and, you know, pretty much became almost every day within a couple of years. They weren't, they weren't the greatest, so, the greatest thing I ever did. 
what was the what was the dynamic of that show? Because I I heard I heard that I guess there I heard you were just like you didn't hold he didn't hold any punches. Those shows were legend. And you know the thing about those shows was I would walk there in the morning, and I would think to myself, this is something that you will look back on for the rest of your life as some of the most fun you ever had in racing because Harvey is so great and Harvey was so funny. Think about Harvey Pack. People don't realize what Harvey is. He's funnier in real life than he is um, on TV, and he's funny on TV. But he's a genuinely funny guy, and he's an acerbic guy, and he also gets the humor in things um, in a way that appeals to my sense of humor. And, you know, I remember, um, oh, um, Dave Goodfriend being on one day, the Maven, and he's going on his shtick, and Harvey turns to him and says, you sound like a walking 900 number. (laughs) Harvey was just... So great, you know, and Dave was fun. I mean, Dave, you know, took it as it was meant to be and and all all in good fun. Um, And there, you know, the shows were great. It was me and Steve Christ and Harvey, but there were a lot of fun people on and different guests. Carrie Fodius, who I always liked Carrie and I could have fun with Carrie. And um, just they were really fun. Now, I don't know what year, but after about two years and we got big crowds at Ciro's because understand if you didn't go to the Ciro seminar you had no idea what was set at it and they were good um and like I'm telling you Travers Day we'd have a thousand people back there Saturday we'd have 500 weekdays 300 I mean there were it was crowded but then capital OTB started showing them. I don't know if it was 2002 or three so we had to behave a little better I'm not sure if we were still smoking on stage because I was smoking back then but knowing Steve was involved he was probably smoking on stage so I probably was and I think I was and you know I was out every night until four in the morning and you know I was younger than and crazier than and things were different and but they were great but then when they got onto capital we had to behave a little bit better um and then I think after one year on capital New York decided they wanted to show them as well so in one respect, it got me a lot of exposure. In another respect, it sort of killed the intimacy and the fun of it, right? Because we couldn't, you know, say all the crazy stuff you wanted to say um, all the time. I mean, still some of it. But they were great. And um, listen, in a lot of ways, it gave me exposure. So it made it easier. I mean, you know, for me to get work after that. And, and you know, I, in, in 07, I got some work working with YouTube. You, excuse me, you bet, doing stuff. And that coincided with when I was leaving the floor. But those zero seminars, they were they were legendary stuff. They lasted until I want to say through 08. So almost 10 years. Tremendous, tremendous stuff. That, is that is that where so Pete was like a like a like a stage hand or something, right? Right. Yeah. 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 My friend Laura was our original um, stage. She was our she 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 definitely she ran the stage. And then I think she graduated from RISD and she went on to a real life. And Pete showed up and um then Pete was Pete was the stage manager at at Ciro's. That's how I that's how I know Pete. Were did you when you met Pete, were you aware of who his dad was? No. I think I found out not long after that, but no. I mean I wasn't you know, I found out about his dad, but I didn't know at the time. He's just an affable guy and we had fun in the show, but he was, you know, but no. I don't even know I had no idea how he got involved. I don't know if you know this, but Pete, my neighbors on the other side of my wall that I'm looking at in my bedroom. Um, the neighbors live there now, Dan and Bess, their son and Peter, old longtime childhood friends. Are you aware of that? Oh, I didn't just know totally that. Random. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I know that Pete always, uh, it's funny when I'm with Pete sometimes in New York and when people find out like who his dad is, they like, they flip out, you know? Oh <laughs> yeah. He's a legend. I just didn't, 
you know, it wasn't really my, um, you know, things I knew, but I found out about it. So I've always wanted to ask you and, and don't get mad at me. I don't, I don't know a lot about the grateful dead. So what, what, how, uh, when did you kind of fall in love and how many shows have you been to? Um, probably around 300, maybe 10 more or 10 less. And I think if you threw in Jerry Garcia band shows, it's well over 300. Um, you know, I'm an obsessive guy, which you may have become aware of. (laughs) Um, I don't do things mildly, you know, like if I really like an author, I read all his books or her books. You know, I, I do things obsessively and I was aware of the dead a little bit, but I went to see them in Glens Falls, which is 15 miles north of Saratoga in August of 1979. It's the first time I saw them. I knew very little of their music. I think there were a few songs of the show they played that I even knew what they were. And I just thought, oh my, and I'd been to a lot of concerts, you know, I've been going to concerts back since I was a kid. Right. So I'd seen a lot of bands. It wasn't like, you know, I was unfamiliar with concerts. So it wasn't like, Oh, this was my first concert experience. And it was the concert that drew me in. I thought, this is really amazing. Like, I really love this. I really like this. And so because I'm obsessive, I went out and bought all their albums. I found out about the bootleg culture and got some of them some, from friends. And then they came back to Glens Falls in May of 80. And um, I went to that show, got like seats in the eighth row from a friend. And that was amazing. And by then I sort of knew the songs and, you know, the whole dead culture, it's almost like a sports thing too, because they play different songs every night. You talk about what songs they played and there's that sort of thing to it, you know? And one of the great things about Lehigh, which I discovered fairly quickly, the first thing I found out about my freshman year and I met kids that were into the dead, um, was that you could go to concerts back then and scalp tickets really easily for like $10, you know, concert tickets were five to like $8 back then. So you could just show up at shows and get tickets for $10 out front. So I went to the Spectrum shows and I went to NASA Coliseum and I got some friends. So by the time my sophomore year rolled around, I knew about doing stuff like that. And they played at Lehigh my sophomore year, actually, um, in September of 1981. Um, And then E2, I'd made enough friends that went to shows. I just went on tour. I saw 10 of the 13 shows in the spring tour of 82. The fall tour, I went to five of them. Um, 83 spring tour. I think I went to 11 or something. Um, the summer they played that summer. I went to a bunch of shows, including Saratoga's back and driving out to Chicago with some friends. Then the fall of 83, I went to 10 of 11 shows, including Lake Placid and Portland, Maine and all sorts of fun stuff. And then my, my senior year, you know, we went to every show on the whole tour because I was graduating and I had done so amazingly well in college that I deserved to give myself a present. And, you know, so I, you know, you were, the farthest I went from Lehigh South was Duke, you know, which is like an eight or 10 hour drive. And the farthest North we went was Maine, which is about eight to 10 hours. It's never really that far. Right. And I just went to a lot of shows and then, you know, they play the garden so much. They play six or nine shows of all of them in the spectrum. But I went to a lot of fun places too. Besides that. And I just went to a lot of shows every year, you know, 20 to 30 shows pretty much you until Jerry Garcia died. You, uh, you mentioned the garden. Um, are you so? Are you officially a Knicks fan? Are you a net? Where are, where are we with the with the with the hoops? I, I always watch the Knicks and Nets because you know my introduction to sports was betting on it. I discovered that you could bet on sports when I was hanging out at the bookie joint. 
So my uncle took me to a Nick game, the Nick Christmas game. The Knicks used to always play the Sixers at Christmas. So in 77, 80, I went to the Christmas game. It was the year after the Sixers had lost to Bill Walton in the finals uh, in Portland. And they had Dr. J and Daryl Dawkins, you know, and Doug Collins. And I mean, it's an amazing team, right? George McGinnis was on that team. And I went to the garden, to the garden with the game. We sat behind the basket, a few rows behind it. And I'm like, oh man, this is awesome. So I started watching the Knicks and I was a kid in Saratoga. So on channel nine, right? All their away games. And the Nets away games were on too. So I started watching them too and betting on them. And, um, I got really into that, but I watched Knicks and Nets. So I always sort of rooted for both teams. But when I moved to New York in 84, you could scalp in front of the garden, you know, for, for not that much money, especially even when Patrick came in 85, 86, because they didn't get good until the late 80s. And so I went to a ton of games, ton of games. And there was one, a couple of seasons I probably went to 30 or more home games and just like obsessively into them. But. I still follow the Nets, too, and I went to some Nets games as well. But in the year of the fight, 97, 97, they had a team that could have really challenged Michael. And they got in that fight against Miami, and they all got suspended, and they lost that series. And I said, that's it. I can't. I'm too emotionally involved in this. I can't root for them anymore. I've been let down for the final time. My girlfriend has, you know, mistreated me for the last time. And... My neighbor at the time was my friend, actually, in the Olympic store. He said to me, oh, you'll never, you'll never root against the Knicks. And he was from Chicago, and he was a big Bulls fan. And I said, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to bet $1,000 on the under on the Knicks next year, and I will prove to you that I'll root against the Knicks. And I remember Patrick got hurt the next year. And so I quite easily won my under bet. And I never really got back into rooting for them. And as I stopped rooting for them, I rooted more for the Nets. And then when we moved to Brooklyn, we went to a lot of games. And, you know, so I'm more of a Nets fan. But... I think if the Nets trade for Harden, I might start rooting for the Knicks again. Yeah, so I was, was going to ask you. I was worried. I was worried about you. I had a feeling that wouldn't be. Uh, I know you were hard on my man Kevin Durant. I have a feeling you wouldn't be happy about James Harden coming to the Nets. You know, it's not that. What's the fun? I like rooting for the Nets because they were like an up and coming team, and they didn't win. And I know they had good years with Jason Kidd, but I like rooting for bad teams. So if they get good, you can get. You know, it's like you feel like you're being rewarded for being a fan. You're being rewarded because they go out and trade and buy the best players in the league. I don't get a lot of pleasure out of that as a fan. Well, are you? Can you turn on a on a Thursday night midway through the season? Turn on a, a Milwaukee Bucks Toronto oh, yeah. Raptors game and enjoy the whole thing. Yep, love basketball. I watched a lot of it in Saratoga over up there this summer. I mean, when we weren't working, you know what I mean? I put the games on and like I'd watch a little bit. And then if the fourth quarter was, you know, was interesting, I'd, I'd sit down and watch the fourth quarter, you know, working at home because we weren't out that much, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I like that. I love basketball. I like well, baseball, too, but I watch a lot of basketball. Are you a LeBron fan or no? I love LeBron. I think he's awesome. Yeah. I'm a huge Michael fan. You know, I mean, sorry, I can be the Knicks, but I think LeBron's great in every way. I love everything about him. Yeah, I really do. I think he's, think he's tremendous. Yeah, I just think it's, you know, it, it reminds me, like, just to kind of compare it to racing. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, this horse with unbelievable pedigree that everyone thinks is the fastest horse in the world. And then it actually turns out to be the fastest right. horse in the world. Yeah, no, you're right. It's a good analogy. I mean, I mean, you were, I mean, you're obviously much younger than me, but I remember, you know, hearing about LeBron when he was like 15 or 16. And then ESPN showed one of his games his senior year. Yeah. 
And it's like, holy, holy, look at this guy. He's 18 or 17. And, I mean, he was an incredible force from the minute he walked into the NBA. I, I don't like the LeBron-Michael comparisons because at the end of the day, who's to say that they're both better than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and what he does? They're both just amazing, amazing players. And um, LeBron is incredible in, in, in every single way. And I, I, I just think he's amazing and love watching him play. Um, of You know, obviously he spent a lot of time in New York and did some Florida and some Kentucky. What What big race in the world have you not been to that you'd like to go to? Well, I think we'd all like to go to the Melbourne Cup, right? Would that be fun? It's on a Tuesday, also, isn't it? Yeah, it's the Tuesday after the Breeders' Cup. Um, I'd, love, I'd like to go to Cheltenham. I think that would be fun. If you want with the right people, right? It'd yep. be fun. Um, you know, I mean, like I said, I'd like to go to Goodwood sometime, and I will sometime. Um, I'd like, I, I think I'm going to, tr- you know, if things are more normal, I'm going go to go to, to English Champions. I like to go to English Champions, and my friend Tony lives in London, and he always just keeps inviting me, telling me to come. I don't want to go to Royal Ascot. I don't want to go all the morning suit crap. I, I just doesn't appeal to me. It just doesn't seem fun. But I think going then to, to – I'd love to see Ascot, but go for English Champions Day would be great. I'd love to go to Leopardstown um, and go to Irish Champions, which is right after Saratoga. I'd like to go there a lot. You know, When I went to Ireland, I was um, in Galway on the other coast, on the west coast. I'd like to go to Dublin and go there. I think that would be really fun. I mean, I don't, I'm not like dying to go to anyone specifically. I'd like to go to any, all, any and all of them. I'd like to go to the Ark again. You know, Naja, who we work with, I talk, Naja and I talked about going to Paris and going to the Ark. Obviously, we couldn't this year, but we'll go. Yeah, I, I've, I mean, all of those are, are ones that I'd love to, to, to go to. I just like the, I like the culture, the European racing, the culture, the, it's, it's, it, you know, it, it just, it feels a little bit different than here. Um, it's almost like betting's more, uh, more accepted over there, so it's got a different feel to it. Um, I'd like to go to Shaw to Shaw Ten, though. I'd love to go to Hong Kong sometime. And, and oh yeah, I'd love to go there. No, I'm with you. I had been invited to go with Pat when he was there, but that got sort of canceled. I agree, that would be fun. Yeah, I heard. Oh, that, I heard Happy fun. Valley is just amazing. Right? No, I'm sure they're great. Yeah. No, no. I, I all that stuff. I'd love to do any of that stuff. Um, I'll tell you the track I loved the most when I went to Paris was was Saint Cloud. You know, it's up on a hill overlooking Paris. It's really great. They, they, they when the horses finish, they they wrap, they, they they pull up around a big tree. It's a really nice little track. It's really pretty. Um, you'd like it. It's nice. When was the first time that and and who made the dunce cap for you? When was the first time you you, you pulled that out of the? Uh... That was the Shiro's thing. Um, I don't remember why something came up and I said, I'll wear a dunce cap if this horse wins. <laughs> and, it, you know, it, I'm not sure, but I want to say it could have been the summer of 05, because that summer I, would, I had this girlfriend, Kendra, and she's very artistic, um, and she made me dunce caps. She, in fact, there's, a, there's, there's an orange one in my office at Belmont that she made for me many years ago. Um, and she made me a dunce cap while we were, we were together in Saratoga that summer. Because the Zero's dunce cap thing. She was, she was actually working at Zero's in the evenings. Um, and she uh, made me my first dunce cap. Then the D on it was great. It's really fun. And I always thought I should, like, you know, have some in Saratoga and autograph them. We've kind of gotten away from it. They're gimmicks. You know what I mean? I don't think you want to, you know, you want to do gimmicks that long or that often. But, man, people love the dunce cap. I mean, if I would, like, 
be wrong and have to wear the dunce cap the next day. <laughs> I'd be like downtown that night. People be yelling out of cars. I oh, that dunce cap on tomorrow. And I'm like, Jesus, I, I think people... so seriously. I, you know, I thought it was fun. I mean, it's, it's a way of saying, you know, I know I'm, I act like I'm the world's biggest know-it-all, but I'm not. And you can have fun and laugh at yourself a little bit. We all need to laugh at ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. People, people do enjoy when you're wrong though. I think they, they get some satisfaction out of it. It's fine. I'm, I'm all good with it. You know, I, I do act like I'm the smartest guy in the world. So it's good to, to acknowledge that you're an, I'm an idiot sometimes, you know, um, I wore one of the winter circle with, um, uh, with Christoph with a, um, uh, um, what's the Donegal? The Donegal people love it. I hated one of their horses one day, so I wore it the winter circle in the worst one. It's all fun, you know. It's all good fun. I mean, racing needs to be more fun, right? It is entertainment, and you know, it's supposed to be fun. Where did you hang out at Saratoga when you were a when you were a civilian before you were working? Where was like your your kind of your go to spots? Um, a lot of it was the second floor of the clubhouse behind the boxes. Um, on those TVs. I go up there a lot. Some on the first floor of the clubhouse by the big TV, you know, that's sort of against, you know, that, that if you're looking at the TV on the other side of it would be like the Burger Shack or whatever, you know, yep. like that area. Those were the two main places I hung out probably in Saratoga. Did, were you, did you do a lot of patronage at like Belmont Aqueduct or did, were you, did you hang out there very much or were you doing some? Oh, sure. Back when I was playing full time, I went every day. Where, where were your spots always- there? Belmont, um, mostly the third floor, not far from where our studio is on the third floor. Right. We hung out up there a lot. There was a kiosk where we hung out and watched the races, which is a replay kiosk back there. I hung out there most of the time. Most of the time it was the third floor. Sometimes we'd sit up on the seats above the third floor. Um, you know, and things changed when people, you know, went away. Like, you know, when, um, when Doc left, you know, left town and, and moved out of town and stuff and different people were different gone and stuff. But th- that was pretty much the area I hung out. And then, you know, most of the horses around the paddock, too, when they came out at Belmont. I love the paddock at Belmont. And Aqueduct, probably. Aqueduct, mostly the first floor of the clubhouse, a little the second floor. Did you Meadowlands uh, back in the day? Oh, yeah. 94, I went every night, except for Dead Shows and New York Film Festival. Um, what, time they start? what time did they start? It was late, wasn't it? I think 7.30, somewhere in there, something like that. I would go when I was working. When I was trading, you know, in the beginning, especially in the 90s, you know, even, you know, late, even as soon as I moved here, I would go there at least once a week in the beginning. But after that, once or twice or even three times a week, take the bus from the, the Port Authority. I mean, back then, the late 80s, early 90s, I mean, there was a line when you went to get the bus and the bus would leave every 15 minutes or so. You would get there, especially on Friday and Saturday nights, and you'd have to wait for one or two buses before you got onto a bus in the first place. Was it tough to get back? I think it was like a rough neighborhood, wasn't it, kind of? Well, yes and no. I mean, getting back, there was a bus that left after every race. So if you wanted to leave before the night was over, you ran out after the race and just got the bus right there, and you're back in you know, Port Authority in 15 minutes, maybe less. You know, Meadowlands is only like six miles from Manhattan. Um, you're in Port Authority. I mean, it's a little rough in Tom. Well, back in the 80s, you know, Times Square and that area was a little rougher than it is now. And there were, you know, there were moments when I was playing full time my first year in 94, you know, coming back the bus at midnight, pocket full of cash. And I'd sort of have a reflective moment on my life and where I was heading at that time in my early 30s. But I I knew I was doing the right thing. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I wanted to ask you about a couple specific moments in like in my lifetime that I remember that were really special at Saratoga. And then, and then obviously invite you to, to share some of the ones that, that really kind of moved you. But uh, one of the ones that, and I wasn't there, unfortunately, but uh, one of the ones that really just still grabs me by the throat is Rachel's Woodward. Um, describe that day. And, and did you, did you pick her? <laughs> um, you know, I don't think I did. I'm trying to remember. I might've picked somebody that lost. I'm glad she won. I the, love the her. motion horse buzz. What was that motion horse? Buzz no, horse? I didn't like bulls bay. Bulls bay. Um, I didn't like the worst. It was second. I think I might've liked Kieran's horse. Is that possible? He had that, that horse, um, that one of the shakes owned. I'm not sure which one. Yeah. I don't remember all their names. Name something boy. Asiatic That's boy. A, yeah. I think that might've been who I picked. Um, but that was a magical day. Um, that was a day where it just felt like the gods, you know, smiled on us because it was like 80 degrees and just beautiful out, you know, it was late in the meet. It was into September. So it was, you know, up until that Saturday, that Woodward Saturday of Labor Day weekend, we were getting fifteen to 17,000 people there. We weren't getting huge crowds. We had 30 for Rachel, and it was because of Rachel. I mean, it was one of those moments when it was one of those really magical Saratoga days. Spectacular weather, great racing car. There were 12 races. And, I mean, one of probably my biggest regrets for doing TV for Nyra was Jason and I were in the paddock for that race. So I wasn't in the grandstand, in the boxes. I wasn't right there to see it. I could just watch the monitor that we had. But man, you could feel the energy, you know, coming from the grandstand and just imploring her to, you know, get the victory. And, and people, you know, I mean, were there for her and lining the, you know, the, the, the walkway from, from the Oklahoma to the paddock to see Rachel. Rachel coming into the paddock, being there for that, the whole thing. You know, a lot of people want to remember that, that she threw Calvin off when she got on the track. Unfortunately, he held on the reins, so she didn't get loose. But there was that moment when he was dumped off or going on the track, which a lot of people may not know of or don't remember or aren't, you know, aren't aware of. But that was an incredible day, incredible weather, atmosphere, and a race that lived up the build, building. I mean, that race... And Holy Bulls Travers are very similar races and the manner in which those two truly great horses won. And those are the kind of days that are magically, you know, some races and days that are magically etched into your brain as, you know, um, proof that you've chosen the right path in life to be able to be there for part of those days. How about, uh, how about arrogate? And that, for me, that was, I was there for that one. And that one felt pretty, felt like you, it felt like you witnessed something special that you might not see for a very long time. Oh, I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, the difference between that and a Rachel and even a Holy Bull was, you didn't know who the hell arrogate was at the time, right? So you didn't have any idea. Um, and I was watching that, um, with my friend Seth in the box, and I remember sort of turning to him and him looking at me as they were in the stretch, like, oh, my God, I, I don't know that I've ever seen anything like this. And what I particularly liked about that performance by Arrogate was that it came at a time when mediocre was being mistaken by some people for greatness. And 
I'm not saying they weren't good horses, but you know, Nyquist, Exaggerator, those type of horses, and even at that point, Gunrunner, because Gunrunner didn't get better, of course, until probably the Clark, right? And then he went on his tear as a four-year-old. They just were sort of randomly mediocre, good horses, right? And, you know, to be fair, I know everybody loves Songbird more than me, and she was a wonderful two-year-old, and she won all her races, but she wasn't very fast. I mean, I don't care who you are. She just wasn't very fast. And suddenly, Arrogate shows up, right? And Arrogate showed to the Travers what happens when a really great horse, or I would say a great performance. I don't know that you could call him a great because his, his run wasn't long enough. He had greatness in him. His Travers was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. But this is what happens when mediocre good horses meet a truly great good horse. And he beat them by 15 lengths in the Travers. You know what I mean? And to me, that was like an example to everybody like, there actually have been great horses in the past, and this is what happens when they meet these horses. Yeah, he was he was something else. I, you know that that race was was unbelievable, and and uh, and then you know beating Gunrunner in the Dubai World Cup, I thought that race was. I was at a, <laughs> I was at Hawthorne, <laughs> like the first floor at Hawthorne for a contest that day. It's where I watched that race, and you win. Uh, it was a. Uh, I did not win that day. No, <laughs> I have won a Hawthorne contest, but not that one. Um, who are some other performances that really stick out in your time at Saratoga or, or even, you know, Belmont, you know, I mean, obviously Frosted jumps in my mind and his met mile, but uh, maybe some other ones that, that really kind of impacted you. You feel like you'll remember forever. Spectacular bid beating general assembly at coastal in the Marlboro in 79. Um, I was there forgo running down foolish pleasure it was the first time i ever watched a races and race in the boxes in, in belmont in 76 you know general assembly in the travers i was there for that you know i was there for affirmed in alidar's belmont sitting very close to our studio in the third floor at belmont um you know so i saw a lot of those historically great races um i saw a lot of woody's races i did not see cielo not there for that um you know, I wasn't there for a lot of the two-year-olds in the fall up in, until I moved there. But even Holy Bull beating DeHare when DeHare was, you know, the second coming and Holy Bull's first race, in, second race in New York. He ran there over day to meet and then he beat him. Um, I mean, so many of them. I, I can't, you know, Rachel, when she ran the Mother Goose and she beat him by 17. I was only two horses, but they were both great stakes winners. When he, beating them the way she did. Um Horses like Rebeletta that I saw in the fall in those big races. Go for Wand. I loved Go for Wand as much as any horse I've ever seen. And it was just so heartbreaking what happened to Breeders' Cup. But her races, you know, in the Masquette and those races, and even in the test, seeing her, I can still remember her walking down the chute from the, the walking ring to the track. And she was such a gorgeous racehorse um, going by um, for that race horses like that i'm just you know it's hard to remember it's in the air beating devona dale i love devona dale but it's in the air beater in, in the alabama um it's hard you know you'd have to go back and you'd have to remind I me mean, easy goer i i love easy goer easy goers win the belmont was one of the most satisfying races i ever saw you know the vindication for him finally beating sunday silence and doing it at home did you and the way the he beat him was well no, did i what did you go? bet easy goer in the derby I don't know if I bet him, but I wanted him to win. You wanted, yeah. Um, I loved Easy Goer. I mean, I remember him, you know, his whole career. I loved, loved, loved. I was there when he won the Gotham. 
Um, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to pinpoint. I've seen so many of those good horses over the years, which the great ones. I mean, you bring up Arrogate, and Arrogate is one of the great performances. And Rachel Holy Bulls Travers, which I talked about, was an incredible, incredible race. There were there were great, a lot of great performances throughout there that I'm forgetting, but so many of them. I don't. I, I love racing, you know, and I like seeing good horses. And listen, we all fall in love with certain horses that aren't as good as we wish they were, but we still love them for whatever reasons. Lore getting his final win of his career in the Bernard Baruch when he beat um, Paradise Creek and Four Star Dave, that was a great moment. I loved Lore. He was an amazing racehorse. A lot of I was there for Personal Ensign's debut. I saw almost all of her races live when she ran down winning colors to win the Masquette at Belmont um, in the fall. I was at that Breeders' Cup, that that win by her in the Breeders' Cup. I mean, even watching, every time you watch it, it's like the old joke about the John Wayne movie. You know, you, you think this time he's going to die or whatever. You know, this time she's going to lose. But she always wins, you know. And it's, it's, I mean, those are great moments in racing. You know, Lure's win in the 92 Breeders' Cup down at Gulfstream, right? When he just destroyed the field. Great races. Miesque. I loved all those horses. I still do. Uncle Mo's debut. Did you uh, did you know he was going to do that? Was that the talk of the town? Yeah, I mean, it was very highly touted. You don't know horses are going to run out and run like that. He was incredible. Absolutely. I was there for that race. And the champagne. What was that, 2010? Some yeah, I mean, I thought his loss to Caleb's posse in the, in the King's Bishop when he came back for his first race in the King's Bishop almost five months after Wood Memorial, that was an incredible performance. Oh, yeah, you know, that was awesome. He lost by a nose. He might as well have won, right? And Caleb's posse was a monster. Yeah, he was you know, so good. That yeah. double wasn't going to pay very good, though. I'm sure Rapoli had it hammered. I actually had, that was one of my greatest handicapping feats in, 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 in my career. I managed to pick the last place finisher in the Kings Bishop and then the Travers back to back. Very impressive. I picked Cool Blue Red Hot, and then I picked Raison. Detra or whatever. Raison, yeah, that, Raison d'Etat. Horrible Judmont horse. <laughs> and Cool Blue Red, I was an angel pen, I think. Um, there's two horses that I wanted to ask you about, um, just because I wanted to get you just your... I've never really talked to you about it. Um, and you can take whichever one you want first. Zenyatta and American Pharaoh. Are you? Do you question how good they were, or are you annoyed by them being anointed by the public the way they are? I'm annoyed by everything, as you well know. Um <laughs> I, my prop, Senyata was obviously a gigantically talented horse. Um, my problem with Zenyatta was that they should have taken a couple of more chances. She should have run a couple of Hollywood Gold Cups, you know? She should have run in some other better, bigger races. They didn't have to ship. I don't have a problem with not shipping. It's a California horse. I'm not one of these people that say they have to ship to prove their greatness. You know, I mean, I grew up when there was no Breeders' Cup. And everybody shipped to New York in the fall. But the landscape changed. So I have a problem with that. I wish they had run her against the boys a couple other times. I thought they manicured her career to stay undefeated. And I thought that that was to her detriment. Because she was a marvelous talent. She would have won her share. Maybe she would have lost. The other thing is, horses gain in defeat. You know, in some ways she gained in defeat in the, in the, in the Breeders' Cup. I don't believe the BS of her not liking the racetrack and all that gibberish. She's a slow horse that figured to be 25 lengths behind early in that race. And, you know, that's who she was. And she ran a race and she ran a brilliant race that day. Um, but I thought that they kind of cheated her and the fans a little bit. 
And maybe he'll disagree with me on that. And that's fine. I'm okay with that. Um, and listen, I mean, I'm also an East Coaster. And I do think that Rachel had a much more brilliant season than she did that year. Um, I think that you could argue that in 2000, the night, the year before, right? That maybe it was, uh, was it 09? 09, she won the, the, uh, the, the, the distaff. Right. She could have been horse the year that year. You know, I didn't think she deserved it over Rachel the next year. I don't see how you could argue she did. Maybe she would have. They took a couple more chances. But they really, I, I resented that they manicured her career to stay undefeated. I don't think that's unfair. Um, but I also probably never gave her her due. Um, she was a better horse than I probably gave her credit for at the time. But it was a weird thing. You know, they had synthetics out in California and, you know, and, and, and so it was, you know, it was a hard time for them with the synthetic racing. And she probably was a better dirt horse, to be honest. Um, bet she would have been a good turf horse. She had a big turf pedigree. So I, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I like getting riled up in the debate with her, but I don't dispute her as being just a marvelous racehorse. American Pharaoh, I wish American Pharaoh could learn as a four-year-old. Because I think there's the potential that he could have really blossomed as a four-year-old and been brilliant like a ghost zapper. You know what I mean? That kind of maybe he could have been. I'm not saying he would have been because I think he had real brilliance in him. Um, I think that the histrionics about his defeat in the, in the Travers was some of the stupidest thing I've ever seen in racing. Because Jose Lascano dared to make her go a quarter under 24 in the middle of a big grade one race. Jose was this villain and somehow poor American Pharaoh. Are you kidding me? Compare his race to the race that Holy Bull ran the Travers or Rachel ran the Woodwards and spare me. Or Rachel's loss in the personal ensign when she dueled with life at 10 who was eased and came back to win a grade one in her next start. You know, you compare those races to what poor American Pharaoh had to go through in the Travers, and it's just crap. They acted like with American Pharaoh, you know, he's allowed to get a perfect trip in all his races. He's allowed slow paces and easy setups, and that's okay because we love him. He's a very, very, very good horse. Um, and what I liked about him was he shut the people up that said a triple crown winner will save racing. That notion is just nonsensical and there's no data to back it up. I do know that, you know, we got all those people come out Sarah in the morning and that was obviously exciting. And that was tied to the triple crown, but that was also tied to the magic of Saratoga. I think that, that American Pharaoh was a very good horse. I don't think he was as good as a lot of people thought he was, but I think he was a very, very good horse. I think he was a better horse than justify though. Justify accomplished a lot in a very short period of time. I wish that American Pharaoh would run as a four-year-old because I have a sneaky suspicion he would have gotten better and been unbelievably good. And I was sorry we didn't get a chance to see that. I understand why we didn't, but I was sorry we didn't. Oh yeah, he he could have been, he could have been something special. Um, one of the things I always ask uh, people that that uh, that I want to kind of wrap up with is is, you know you know a lot about the game from a lot of different aspects. You've been paying attention to it, following it for a long time. What, what are some things, maybe one thing, two things, whatever, however many you want to say that you wish racing would get right, that it it's frustrating because we're not getting it right. And you feel like it really would help the game uh, be around for generations to come. Oh, that's a good question. And I don't really have the answers to it. Um, 
I think a lot of things that you and I do on the show, we're getting right. And I like the fact that we have people at Fox like Mike Mulvihill that support what we do. We have Tony and Eric that support what we're doing at Naira, you know, and, and, you know, and even if it's Dave O'Rourke as well, that support. And I, I, I like that. And so I think that that's, I think that fan education in an, in an intelligent way is really the best way we can grow the game. Um, in that respect, I, um, I wish that we would always be thinking about um, the betters. You know, one of my latest rants is about this voided claim thing in New York, which I think is a good thing. I'm not criticizing that. Anything we can do that's, you know, going to be beneficial to the safety of the horses, that's all good. I, I buy that, you know, that line I buy completely. And I think I know you agree, but I don't think it's fair to have these voided claims and not tell people it was voided because this and that, whatever it is, whatever information from the vet, just give us the information. We'll get on the website, whatever it is, you know, get it out there because people do know trainers, know owners, you know what I mean? That information is sort of around, but it's, it's, it's a factor. We're seeing horses come back that ran, that were, that ran second or one and that claims voided. People want to need to know why they were voided. I think we need to make sure that information gets out to the public. I don't want there to be information that's available to some people. I don't care if people have to work for it to find it. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be in the chart. It doesn't have to be in the PPs. It can be somewhere on the website, like my track trends. It should be there somewhere for people to find. So I think that we as an industry need to constantly be aware of our customer base. And um, by, the, but by the same token, Jonathan, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a horse player and I'm a grump about things. So I get dissatisfaction that people have. But the constant we don't do anything for the horse players is a little tiresome. Some of those same people hate me. Now, I'm okay with them hating me. But if they don't think I'm trying to give what I can to the horse players, even if they think my opinion sucks, then they're kidding themselves. You know, um, and I'm not trying to pump myself up. We at Naira are doing things for the fans. We're also putting, you know, racetracks put the show on. Um, and it's quite a show to put on as far as keeping the surfaces together and the backstretch together and all the trainers and all the stuff, we're putting the show on and the fans are helping pay for it. And the people own horses are helping pay for it as well, but we're all in this together. And to suggest that we're not doing anything for the horse players, that attitude gets a little tiresome over time. We can always do more, but to suggest we do nothing is frustrating. So I think there's something between, you know, fans, the game, you know, the players and the racetracks where they need to sort of have a, where, you know, a come to Jesus moment, right? Where they realize that we both need to do more to work together. So I think we try to do those things right, but I think we can always do more to be aware of that. So I wish we could do that. I think there's some disconnects, which I'm not going to get in with too in depth um, between some of the powers to be and what actually matters in the game, you know, that, that frustrate me at times. I don't want there to be any more, you know, problems with making sure the timing of the races. There's nothing more important than timing the races accurately. And to think in 2020 that this is an actual issue is mind boggling. We need to be better in that respect as an industry, as a whole, every single person here. Because the truth of horse racing is everybody that works in racing, you've got to be fully committed at every level or it's not going to work. And that goes for all of us. I mean, the trainers, the people in the backstretch, they're working 24-7. And everybody in this game needs to constantly be focused on the game. 
Otherwise, it's never going to work. Yeah, no, I agree. The timing thing definitely is is tiresome. Just you know, I Crazy. I made the analogy to, to someone recently, actually, a couple of days ago, about it's like it's like we we don't take ourselves seriously. I mean, can you imagine if the NFL like in fantasy football said, well, Tom Brady threw for 338 yards, but really it was 326 yards and he didn't throw for two touchdowns. He really only threw for one. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah. like no one would play fantasy football anymore. It, it's, 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 it's so crazy that this, and it, here's the other problem with it. The people who are betting a lot of money, they'll get the times, right? The people that are making Figures, thoroughbreds, ragazins, they'll get the times right. So who will become victimized by this fault information? The average person. Yeah. Isn't that supposed to be who we're all fighting for? Yeah. We're fighting for everybody, but certainly the average player too. And there's all this talk of how do we get newcomers involved in the game, yet we're going to feed them the wrong times? I mean, come on, man. We've got to be so much better than that. And the other thing, you know, another point that I've recently brought up, and and I don't even know if they even pay attention to it, but when it comes to breeding and sales, so much of what dictates that market, especially that private market, is the speed figure. 100%. So if if I'm buying a horse privately from Parks who got a 78 figure, but really that figure was a 58, that's not good for anybody. Times and speed figures are the engine that drives this game. Yeah. Whether you're betting or buying horses or both. You're a hundred percent right. It affects everybody. It's just, it's crazy that this is a discussion and there's any discussion of anybody saying other than we are 100% committed to having the accurate time of every race period. Yeah. It's frustrating. You know, yeah, no, it is. It is. Now you know, I look at figures now and I'm like, ah, I wonder if it was really that fast. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, luckily, you know, buyer, you know, Randy Moss will time them video for buyer and, and Craig Mulkowski, who makes a time from U.S. buyer. They, they both of them time off a of video. But, you know, the other here's the other thing that I find frustrating. You and I watch a lot of races. When we see a time that's out of whack, whether it's a fraction that's out of whack or even a final time. And, and, and you know, if you said to me. If you look at the time of the seventh race at X track yesterday, there's a very good chance I'm going to look at it and go, you're right. That's wrong. Why is there not somebody who sees that besides us that's checking it out? It's never they're always glaring. You know what I mean? Yet there are mistakes and times in the charts where you go, somebody actually transcribed this 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 fractional situation out of the charts. Seriously, it's crazy. And then you get and I know crap happens and it's bad timing for it to happen. But the debacle with the Breeders' Cup Classic and the rush to give out an inaccurate time, which they had to correct a week later. Once there's been a problem and stuff happens, I get it. It's unfortunate it happened in the biggest race of the year, but it happens. It just was bad, you know, bad luck. Why were they in such a hurry to come out with a bad final time? Why don't they just say, we're not going to give a final time in this race until we've gotten together and we've had a number of people look at it and accurately timed it and come up with the right time? What was the big hurry? Yeah. You, you know, I think to your point that you made earlier about, and I agree with you, I, I get really tired of people yelling into the void and and and, yeah. and being like abusive to the other side because, you know, we see it in politics too. It's like you just scream at the other side and think that that's going to make them realize that you're smarter than they are and then they're going to listen to you. They just shut you off and they stop listening to you and they just, they put you in the crazy column. I think w- one of the problems that 
this industry has and why horse players are so disgruntled is because it seems that on it seems that at least once every quarter the industry doesn't mean to but they do something that kind of slaps us in the face and then we get all fired up yeah yeah yeah, you're right i mean the problem listen yes you're 100 right the problem is you know like sometimes i groan where it happens i go oh great we just gave more fodder the loonies you know you know you're not paranoid if they're really out to get you um and it's like the problem is there's a lot of noise um disqualifications I know that's become the complaint du jour and our buddy Pat Cummings. And, you know, we both like Pat and I think Pat's a smart guy. I think he's gone over the top with this stuff, but that's, that's my opinion. I don't think Stewart's decisions are that important. They just don't come into play that often. Having said that, I do think that the stewards in this country should do a better job. Not just as far as consistency, but consistently getting it right. And I I think herding's dangerous. One of the reasons I don't like herding is I believe it's dangerous. Um, I also think it affects the order of finish. But I do understand that that, that stewards in general could probably do a better job. I also think that most of them get it right the vast majority of the time. And to spend as much energy as gets spent on stewards' decisions just seems out of whack with the relative importance of them in the game. Is that unfair? Yeah, I mean, so uh, I'm not going to answer that yet. I'm going to say that we see it in the NFL as well with calls. You know, right. that, that, that pass interference call a couple years ago with the Rams and the Saints. I, I think that you, you, you do – there, in sports, there's always going to be disagreements about rules and how those rules are enforced. I think the problem with racing is that it's just not always that clear and it's different in different jurisdictions. You can watch a race at Naira and a majority of the time you'll get it right because you watched it and you see how they behave right. and what their trends are. But if you, if I showed you a race at California, you might be a coin flip type on getting them right, you know? And I think that's the, that's the problem. It's not so much the rules or the enforcement or does this horse need to get dis- disqualified? It's the inconsistency and the, uh, and kind of the confusion it creates amongst the fans. I would argue my biggest problem with the way stewards view racing is an overemphasis on what happens in the stretch relative to what happens during the rest of the race. Crap is happening in fields, in the back of fields, during races, all the time that never gets adjudicated or even called, which is far worse and far more detrimental to the running of the race than the stuff in the stretch. Yet, because it happened in the stretch, it's of the utmost importance. Whereas if it happened at the seven-eighths pole, it's irrelevant. And how often does a horse get disqualified for early interference? And I don't mean gate stuff. I mean around the first turn, the two-turn race. And stuff does happen in those situations that if it happened in the stretch, they'd be adjudicating it. So why aren't they paying more attention to the race? Now, listen, I'm all for less DQs or better. Um, and I'm all for not taking action if unless it definitively affects the order of finish. And one thing I think, I feel like if, if an inquiry is taking a long time, they shouldn't make a change. To me, a horse should come down. You should be pretty cut and dry. That horse should come down. You know what I mean? Once there's an argument, it probably should stay up. Yeah, if you're discussing it, then, then right. just leave it alone. But, but I don't have a great complaint with – I mean, I disagree with some of the calls that New York stewards make, but usually I'm, I think they're fairly consistent, and I don't have an overall problem. I don't think they're making a lot of bad calls or ignoring stuff. I was surprised by the DQ on – was it Sunday at, at Aqueduct? 
because it was not consistent with a couple of calls they had made recently. Um, I don't have a problem with the takedown in and of itself. I just thought it didn't, it, it was not, you know, I thought it was dichotomous to recent calls. And in general, I've always felt our guys are consistent. I thought that was guys and gals, I should say. I thought that was an inconsistent call. Yeah. But I don't think, I just, I don't think the day-to-day steward stuff really affects us. I think there's so many more important things in the game to worry about. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always found that even even though that's our job, I've always found the most complicated thing to do in this game is to is to knock down that barrier of entry for someone who's new. Um, when it comes to the cost of data, when it comes to me but, trying to explain all the different wagers, uh, trying to explain some of the nuanced stuff like why the odds change the last second. I mean, I understand why that happens, but it's hard to. It's just a. It's a big hump to try to get over, you know? It, it is and it isn't. Um, there are a lot of great chess players in the world. How many of them had a master or grandmaster show up at their house, bring a chess set, and explain to them how to play the game? I'll give you the answer. None of them. The people that want to get involved in racing, we need to get them to come to the track. We need to get them to Saratoga, you know? That's the entryway. That's the place that we can hopefully capture an audience because there's so much going on there. There are people roaming the earth that love horse racing that have never been exposed to it. So they've never had a chance to realize they love it. The ones that are going to like the game are going to want to learn it. Like you want to learn backgammon or you want to learn chess or you want to learn poker. You know, you want to learn these games. It's going to appeal to certain sensibilities that you have. How did you get involved in the game, Jonathan? My dad uh, took me to Lone Star Park. I hated it. Just like you, you, your first kind of your trip. I just, I thought it was kind of annoying and seedy and whatever. And then it just, I just fell in love with it. Absolutely okay, fell in love with the characters. Yeah. I just loved it all after that. Right. And you taught yourself or you learned from people, but you found, right. I mean, you, I think in order to get really involved in this game, you, there, the people have to, we're not going to teach somebody to like racing. I'm not, you know what I'm saying? Your person's going to have to have a certain bug to want to have the aptitude. And that person has got to find the ways to learn, whether it's books, whether it's things. You know, unfortunately, there's so much noise on Twitter that I think it is leading relative newcomers astray. A lot of the BS on Twitter, the conspiracy theories, you know, like my favorite conspiracy theory, the Ortiz brothers set up races for each other. You know, that kind of crap, that's bad because it's going to mislead newcomers into thinking there's all the chicanery going on that isn't going on. So that bothers me. That I wish there's nothing we can do about it, but I don't think that's helpful. But then maybe you could say that the fact that there's so much discussion about it helps newcomers get in the game. But the problem is if they're learning so many bad things to begin with, it's not going to make them like the game or, or, or figure it out. But I, I really... Yes, we need to help educate people. Yes, the barrier to learning is not is, is not it's not easier easy to learn. But what thing worth doing was ever easy? No, I completely agree. No, I I I, uh, I completely and I also think that the uh, <laughs> you know our little circle calls them the uh, the the positive the uh, the positive EV police. Like, just let someone. You know, when they're just starting, let them bet the show. I mean, 
you can teach them after they fall in love. I've, I've always found that. And you can teach them along the way, but you don't criticize someone. Yeah. I don't think you should criticize someone for betting a caveman pick four. You don't criticize them for it. You can teach them there's a better way. You can way. tell them why they might be better off. You know, let them bet it, but say, here's a way you could play that's different. But we've all played caveman tickets sometimes. It doesn't mean that they're smart. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think if somebody's betting a show, you can explain to them why betting a show isn't particularly great. Exactly. But yeah. that doesn't mean it's, uh, it's it, it got people like I, I, I started betting the show when I first went to the racetrack. I was 11 years old or 12 years old, but whatever, you know, no, but I, but I, and, I, and I'm not trying to absolve us from a responsibility to teach, but I, I always subscribe to the, you know, the old, the foreign language classes in high school or college where the teacher only speaks French or, or Spanish. You'll have to learn. You're forced to learn that way. And I think that's what I've always thought. And I know a lot of people that became, you know, more interested in better players because of the Ciro seminars, because of talking horses. I'm not just saying it. I know it for a fact. I know from a lot of people. And you talk to people like they're intelligent and they will respect that. You know, don't talk to people like they're stupid. Talk to them like they're intelligent. They'll figure it out. Yeah. A lot of people aren't going to like our game. It's like, you know, Jerry Garcia, you say about the Grateful Dead. I think we're like buttermilk or something or licorice. We're like licorice. A lot of people don't like or licorice, but those that like it, like it a lot. Well, I don't think, I think it's true of the Grateful Dead. I think it's true of horse racing. A lot of people are interested, but those that are, like it a lot. Yes, it would be nice if we could be more part of the mainstream so you'd have bigger crowds on the weekends. That ship has sailed, dude. And I'll say something else. This notion, we're, we're, we're always apologizing in racing. Stop apologizing. You know, there, yeah, there used to be 30,000 people at Belmont on a Friday. Now there's 60,000 people watching our races on TV or 100,000 people on the internet. Don't tell me there aren't more people watching our races now than watching in the 70s. And don't tell me the racing was so much better back then. We have some pretty good racing sometimes, you know? Stop apologizing all the time. We don't have to keep apologizing. We need to be better about certain things and we need to apologize for that, but we need to constantly not apologize, fix it. But stop acting like the good old days were so great and now everything sucks, because that's not true. You can watch races on your phone. You know, you can bet on your phone. You couldn't do that 20 years ago. How's that a bad thing? Yeah, I was, I was firing away at my sister's wedding one day. That was awesome. Right. I mean, so it's, you know, we, we need to stop pretending that it, we're just woe is me. That's that that attitude's never going to help. We need to stop apologizing and stop being negative about what we're doing. I think there's a ton of great things we're doing. That doesn't mean there aren't things that we should fix and make better. But I think we're doing a lot of good things, too. I think our show's a good thing. You know? Yeah, I do, too. Guys like you and I on the ra- on TV talking about the races. That's not a bad thing. Maybe just for some people, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, I mean, you know, it's 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 that's a good thing, you know. I think the Fox Show is a good thing that we're doing. I hope it is. It's a lot of work. Not complaining, but a lot of work by a lot of people. Um, but I, you know, I think we we act like we have some inferiority complex. Why should we? As long as we feel like we're doing the best we can. I think a lot of it is because we love it. We know how great it is, and we we get we feel like we feel like we're missing the trick on showing other people. I think it's just like, kind of like this, like, you know, we're like in our own little bubble. Like, wait, wait, hold on time out. You love baseball. You watch, you watch the NFL every Sunday. It's the most popular sport in the world. Well, what about this? Why don't you want to watch this on Friday? And you know, 
Maybe some people have found it. I think some people have found it, particularly during the pandemic when we were on and there wasn't much sports. Yeah. I think it's an opportunity for us to have more fans. But I think we need to just do the best we can to present it to people and hope that that's helpful. I, I, I tell you what, since the pandemic, I brought two people to the game since the pandemic. And like people that I had known, they started watching the show and, and um, they combined since March have handled $2.1 million. Very well, proud great. of that. That's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, and that's another thing I think you bring up is true. Baby steps, you know, make one better customer, you know, occasionally, you know, when, when we have people at Belmont, you know, talk to people and, 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 and maybe make them realize that we don't hate them, that people do care about them, you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, be, be content with adding, with making a new fan here and a new fan there. Stop acting like we're going to change the world overnight. And the other thing is make sure if we're bringing people into the game, we're treating them well because we don't need to bring people in and then treat them poorly. That's not going to help. I completely agree. But I, I, mean, I, I have, you know, I, the game is tricky and there's a lot of different movable parts, but I think there's a lot of things to be optimistic about. And, and I just, and, and I love the game and the game continues on and the puzzle keeps going forward. So appreciate that stuff. And I do. And I think you do too. Um, and a lot of people do, but, but, you know, I can get negative about things, but overall I'm extremely positive about racing. I love racing. It's my life. I mean, I have a lot of things I like, but nothing like I love racing and New York racing. I love and the people involved. It's, it's a great, it's a great game. And I feel very fortunate. I've made some great friends in life through racing. Um, some really great friends. And I, I, I feel very lucky for that. And I feel lucky to be able to make a living working in it. And it's important to remember that. Absolutely. Well, I uh, I know you've already looked at Thursday. You got a winner for you got a winner for us. <laughs> no, somewhere over on the other side of my room. Is this really going to be about picking winners? We'll You're, make them. You know, we'll make them tune in. Week, we'll make them tune in. Friday's card. I don't even think I finished Thursday. Do you, you really mean, want me to get my Thursday form? I can walk a few feet and get it if you want. Well, so much, you know, we, we, they've listened to us yap for an hour and forty seven minutes. I feel like we at least throw them. I one. feel like we haven't cost anybody any money yet. I think that was a good thing. Um, I like Sassy Melissa a little bit in race number six. There we go. Uh, I like Tis He the One in the seventh. Um, I picked the other. I haven't made a pick in the tenth yet. I see I have some holes. I haven't made a pick in the first yet. Doesn't look like favor's going to be tough in there. Um, I picked a horse that Abel Castellano trains in the second. By the way, I texted Javier. He said his surgery went well. I was glad to hear that. He's a good man. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good guy. Um, that's about the best I have. Well, that works. I don't have the best I have. They're the picks I have at this point. Oh, you know what I meant to ask you? When's the, uh, when's the matriarch? It's the Sunday, right? Isn't the Hollywood Derby and the matriarch on the... Are they on the Saturday or Sunday of, of Thanksgiving weekend? Yeah, you're probably right. Is newspaper record? I think record they're still... both on Sunday. I think. Because I went out there for it a few years ago. I would have loved to have gone this year. Is but... newspaper going to run? I don't know. You know, it's a good question. I don't know. I, I, I talked to Chad a little bit recently, but I don't really talk to him about specific courses like that that often. Sunday I mean, I the think... 29th is what it says. Here. Yeah. Okay, right. So that and that and the Hollywood Derby on the same day? Um, 
I'm on a bad page that doesn't answer that question. I, I think that domestic spending and both Clamon horses are supposed to go out for that. Um, so that'll be cool. Um, you the know, 29th, what, we'll have the matriarch and the, no, the Cecil B. DeMille stakes. Oh, is the Hollywood Derby the day before? It's the 28th, yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, and I think that Sharing's going out for the matriarch, right? Oh, that'll be great. Yeah, Sharing's going. Um, I know, I remember the chat said Blowout was going. Um, I'm really not sure what, uh, well, I remember that Brad Cox didn't run the Philly uh, Bow Recall because she's going. Looney's obviously not going. She was sold. Um, I mean, newspaper could be going. I just don't, I haven't asked. Yeah, I, th- I think that's what, because I, th- I mean, I really wanted her to run the mile. I just wanted her to run the mile and go 45 to the half and just see what happens. But I would love to see her just open up with her too, but. I don't train them. I, I just <laughs> criticize people that do train them. <laughs> we should. We got to get so you at least easier. one. We got to get you someone to run a horse in your name one day, so you can have. You could be one for one. I'm gonna work on that. It's gonna be my mission. There's actually a horse in the sale. I'd like to buy a piece of. Really? Mm-hmm. How many have you owned before? Zero. Really? Yeah. Wow. That'd um, be fun. I, I've owned one. I've owned a one percent of one horse, and that was long on value. And that was when Marshall and them bought the horse for a hundred thousand. I like. I said, "Hey, let me buy a piece," and they were like, "Sure." And I was like, "Oh, really?" And uh, and then the horse. I was undefeated. I'm undefeated as an owner, and I'm a Grade One winning owner. Wow. Yeah. Was it a Grade One? Was it a fake Grade One over in uh, in Canada? <laughs> yeah. That doesn't count. I'm sorry. You, you want to tell you you want to tell your friends that don't know anything that you want a Grade One. Just go ahead, but don't try to pull that crap from me. Andy Serling, I appreciate you taking the time. It was a lot of fun, and I I, I thought that that I was going to have to maybe fight you at some point, but you were you were just as kind as could be. No, as, as are you, as you always are, and I, <laughs> I enjoyed it, and I appreciate you asking me to come on. I had a lot of fun as well. All right, we'll see you. I'll see you on Saturday. Look forward to. It. Well, wasn't that just pleasant, well, Andy? I'm telling you, he's like a. He's like a, you know, like a, uh, like a bull, right? When he sees red and when he sees, when he's got PPs in front of him, it's a whole different story. Past performances bring it out of him. The rest of the time, he's just like this nice, thoughtful, sweet man that you want to just, you know, sit on a park bench and read a book with. Pretty impressive. Um, that was a lot of fun and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, subscribe, um, on Apple Music or podcasts or whatever you use, subscribe, uh, retweet, share. Um, it's always appreciated. Uh, the network is is having an unbelievable year in, in terms of downloads and listens, and, and we appreciate your support, and we're really proud of that as well. So um, what else? What else? What else? Oh, I got to do that thing where I thank everybody. It's not a whole lot to add, right? Uh, I want to thank uh, PTF. I want to thank uh, Drew. I want to thank uh, Naomi, Talk Racing to me, uh, Spencer, Redboard Rewind. I think he had Michelle Yu this week. I don't know who uh, Naomi had. Her guest last week was phenomenal. I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> Her guest last week. Oof. I won't even spoil it for you. Just go look at Naomi's feed last week, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, Matty Ice, The Matt Bernier Show. Um, Nick Luck. But can't forget about Nick Luck. Got to hang out with Nick Luck on Sunday before I left the Breeders' Cup. He's always fun. And uh, that's it. Thank you guys, too, for listening. Uh, I appreciate it. And we will see you guys next week. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. 
Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but act like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you'd be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk